Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen and Friends. If Watch With Jen is the studio track, this is the acoustic version. Today's guest is Glenn Kenny, a well-respected veteran critic who is based in New York, Glenn Kenny has written for publications such as Premier Magazine, which is where I first read his byline in the 1990s, as well as Film Comment, The Village Voice, and Rolling Stone. Additionally, a contributor to The New York Times and RogerEbert.com, Glenn is a film professor at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts and the author of the books Robert De Niro, Anatomy of an Actor, along with the brand new release, Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas. He has also appeared in such films as Steven Soderbergh's The Girlfriend Experience and Ricky D'Angelo's The Sky is Clear and Blue Today. I am so honored and excited to talk to Glenn about all of this and more. So welcome, Glenn, to Watch with Jen and Friends. So, Glenn, I want to thank you so much for doing this. It's an honor to speak with you. So, how are you doing and how are you adapting to pandemic life? Well, it's been quite a while, actually. I've had I've had plenty of time. And, uh, <laughs> you know, because I work from home most of the time anyway, it hasn't been that bad. Um, my main issue is when I'm reviewing films for either The Times or Ebert.com, uh, sometimes the links aren't as uh, reliable as they ought to be. So... Speaking of technology and its discontents, there's something there. Um, <laughs> but I'm very well. Um, you know, I'm just sort of doing what I need, should be doing, I hope, and staying out of trouble, keeping safe, keeping uh, healthy, and uh, making sure uh, my wife is doing the same. And, uh, yeah, we're just making uh, making the best of things. Good. That's all you can do right now, for sure. Mm. But you were actually one of my first favorite film writers. I was one of those nerdy kids who had like subscriptions to Premiere, Entertainment oh. Weekly, and The New Yorker, and would read like The New York Times back when I was in middle school. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, was, yeah, I was that yeah. I was that I was that nerdy kid too. Oh, okay, great. What was it like writing for Premiere in the nineties? Uh, it was a lot of fun. I didn't know how good I had it, frankly. I mean, it was. Um, it was it was it all happened through happenstance. I remember I was in a magazine in the 1980s called Video Review. Okay. And uh, that I guess Premier's first issue in the United States was in 1988. I remember my boss and myself looking at the first few issues of Premier and saying, "This is a great magazine and here's how we would fix it, you know." And then ah. <laughs> years years later in 1996, the guy who was my boss, Jim Meggs, Got a job there as editor-in-chief, and in the spring of 96, he uh, brought me in to do some special um, project editing work, and then Mm -hmm. hired me on full-time in uh, early 97. So, um, And then I stayed a couple of years as a a senior editor, just uh, editing pieces and doing features every now and then, and I did a lot of interesting stuff. I interviewed David Cronenberg when the film Crash first came out. Oh, I went wow. out to Los Angeles and interviewed all the cast members of Boogie Nights um, mm-hmm. and uh, things like that. And then I started, I worked as the film critic in, starting in late 99, um, beginning more or less with the Toronto Film Festival of that year. No, actually, okay. was it? No, it was uh, Sundance. It was at Sundance 99 
that I first started, and uh, that's when I met Christopher Nolan for the first time. Oh, he wow. was uh, he was there at Slam Dance with Following. Such a good was, movie. He yeah. was very he was very bummed out because it wasn't getting any attention at Slam Dance, oh. and everything everybody at Sundance was all taken with uh, the Blair Witch Project. And, oh wow. Uh, I met him and Emma Thomas on a bus, and I was like, don't worry, things will turn around for you. <laughs> and um, he became Christopher Nolan, and the guys who did uh, Blair Witch Project were not heard from nearly as decisively. So no. um, that was an interesting time. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Going to festivals was a lot of fun. Um, uh, you know, like I said, I didn't know how good I had it, so I was a little glib and a little arrogant about my position there but that was that was my personal prerogative at the time you don't need to hear too much about that i guess um mm. but it was it was a it was a fun 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 time and it was a fun time for movies as you know um, yeah so especially 99 was an amazing year for film 99 was a great year yeah no i remember yeah. i remember going to toronto that's where i met uh steven soderbergh for the first time when he was there with the limey and uh, oh, I, I met Terrence movie. Stamp there. Toronto was really a great place for premiere. We had uh, we for the, between the years 1999 and 2001, we were establishing this incredible profile there. We were almost the the Vanity Fair of Toronto because our our party got so big over those three years that uh, <laughs> it, it, you know it, it became the must go to. Uh, party uh, at the Toronto Film Festival. And then, uh, oh, you know, the, in 2001, the party was on September 9th, 2001, two days before 9-11. And, and we got back there the next year, but um, things were never quite the same after that for so the next six or seven years. They were good. They were fun. But uh, that was kind of between 99 and 2001 for Toronto. I met, you know, had dinner with uh, Lucy Russell, who was in... Uh, Romare's film, The Lady and the Duke. I met Bruno Dumont. Had you know all these fascinating, mm -hmm. interesting uh, filmmakers who were out there: Catherine Brillat, Claire Denis. Um, wow! You know, and seeing their work, of course, which is as exciting, more exciting, really, than meeting them because uh, you know yeah. that is the the unmediated uh, beauty of uh, of film is 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 the work itself. Very much. How did you get your start writing about film? Was it a passion of yours from a young age, or did you come to it yeah, a little later? I was a, I was pretty passionate about film. I was more passionate about music, and I think still okay. that music and film are are kind of neck and neck in my uh, yeah in, in my uh, in my in my heart. Um, I began. Uh, I was a you know when I was a kid, I, I wrote a lot and. Uh, read a lot and I watched a lot of film listened to a lot of music um, I was poorly socialized in other words and uh, you know uh, when I discovered criticism both film criticism and rock criticism I really it, it, it became it became a, uh, a a real preoccupation of mine and I would read mm -hmm. Andrew Saris's American cinema and oh, yeah. I, I would read I would read the the rock and roll magazine cream. And because I was, oh, living wow. in, yes. I, was, I was living in Jersey, I would read The Village Voice. And I I was very taken with these individual critical voices. Uh, a guy named John Piccarella, who wrote about this band, The Feelies, who were my you know, who I knew when I was in college. Um, Robert Criscow, who then became my first editor and to whom I really owe my career. 
James Wolcott was in Cream and in the Village Voice a lot, and then there was Lester Bangs, you know, yeah. memorialized by Philip Seymour Hoffman in Almost yes. Famous, <laughs> who I got to meet a couple of times before he oh, died really? in 1982. He was very friendly. Um, oh, I saw his band, too. Um, so, you know, those were um, those are people I, I was very, I really wanted to, it looked like a great thing to be involved with, as well as just great material to write about. So I began as a rock critic, and I, I kind of got my um, chops through working for Robert Criscow at The Voice, who was an amazing editor. And, you know, at the time, working for larger newspapers like The Times and The New Yorker, there was definitely a kind of a network of Ivy League connected mm-hmm. people who, you know, kind of got the the cream of the jobs. And one night, one of the greatest things about Robert Criscow is that he was an editor who didn't care about any of that. You know, you Good. wrote to him, you had an exchange with him. If he liked your work and felt he, he could work with you, then you got to work with him. And then once you were in The Voice, people would notice you and it would get you a, a leg up in that respect. So mm-hmm. I got my job at Video Review because of one of the people interviewing me who liked my work at The Voice. And Video oh, Review was a magazine that was about video hardware and software. It was a strange thing. You, you Now that magazines are very much almost moribund, you can't even imagine this idea of a, a <laughs> consumer magazine about home video that had mm-hmm. rankings of camcorders and televisions. And my oh, first wow. job was to uh, rewrite the um, the guy who did the test technical test reports. So I, I learned all about signal-to-noise ratios and foot candles and lumens. <laughs> I learned more about television. I, I learned more. I, I forgot more about television technology than most people ever knew. And then it all became obsolete once the cathode ray tube television went out of yeah. uh, you know existence. You know, I, I, I got that scoop on the first Mitsubishi 35-inch TV, and I studied all the math that. Uh, you know, enable them to make a vacuum tube of that size that wouldn't implode, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but I also wrote about video software at Video Review. So I wrote about Laserdiscs. I wrote about the Laserdisc of Raging Bull and Taxi Driver and things like that. And cool. in the midst of reviewing the technical aspects of these video editions, I also wrote about the film's style and form and aesthetics. So that kind of helped me uh, get a grounding in actually yeah. writing about movies and, and film and, and things like that. And I, I look at that stuff now and it's, it's juvenilia, but it's, it's engaged juvenilia. So yeah. when the time came to start writing about films for uh, premiere, we had had a, a film reviewer, Todd McCarthy, who's a brilliant, brilliant guy, yes. but uh, he was brilliant. also the chief film critic for Variety at the time. And he only wrote... Mm-hmm. He would write a 1,200-word or 8 to 1,200-word appreciation of a single film every month. And that I mean, know. It was incredible. Yeah. yeah. My, my, my editor thought, well, that's okay, but, you know, why can't we do more? So <laughs> the idea was to do more. And we had this attitude because we had, we're a monthly magazine. We had this long lead time. So we didn't know if we could actually get access to the films so that we could review them in a timely enough fashion to be meaningful. But we also thought, you know... If they if we build it, they will come. And it's sure, yeah. sure enough, once we determined to have this film review section where we do anywhere from three to nine films a month, uh, we got we began to get access to screenings a little earlier, and we were able to put things together in a timely fashion. Which meant also for me, 
a lot of the time um, just kind of like doing things uh, in a kind of Johnny deadline, uh, you know, last minute mm-hmm. fashion while the rest of the book is in galleys. I go to see, uh, you know, the talented Mr. Ripley and have to write it up that afternoon so we can get it in, which is not unlike the way, you know, someone like Todd yeah. McCarthy worked at a place like Daily Variety. Yep. Well, I love hearing your evolution into writing about film. I also wrote about music for a while, and I think it's important to explore other art forms because it it adds so much to your work, and I see that. Yeah, and you're also a film professor at NYU, so what is Professor Kenny like? And do you have a favorite course or lesson plan that you look forward to teaching? Well, I teach uh, the way that the film uh, film school is organized in uh, at NYU is um, a little a little bit complex. There are lecture courses, and those lecture courses are taught to groups of almost 150 or so. And um, in a lecture course, you'll look at a film, but then there's what follows, and I, that's where I teach. I'm a recitation teacher, so okay. the group gets of 150 gets broken down into, um, you know, groups of 20 to 25, and they mm-hmm. get the recitation, which is a 75 minute follow up on the three hour lecture. So uh, basically, what I'm doing is I'm amplifying. I'm leading the, the class in discussion of what uh, was covered by uh by the lecturer but also taking the specific i I teach a course called language of film i'll take a specific aspect of film editing cinematography Mm -hmm. um set design mise-en-scene and show them some clips that are illustrative of that um Mm -hmm. you know when we're talking about time compression or something i'll show a scene from um north by northwest where uh there's a um where, where uh, Leo G. Carroll is reading, uh, leading Cary Grant to the plane to go to South Dakota, and the propellers uh, start uh, going. And, uh, you know, Leo G. Carroll is explaining some plot points to Cary Grant that in real life would take about a half hour, no, <laughs> 30, no three minutes to do. But because the propellers are going, he uh, like 20 seconds pass, and the audience is sort of fooled into mm-hmm. believing that, you know, a lot has taken place uh, during that time frame. And this is a way of, of uh, yeah. kind of respecting their time, but it's also a kind of uh, token of, of real, very crafty language of film trickery. So I'll show that clip and talk about it. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. I always enjoyed those to see uh, what teachers would choose. Um, I was a film major, and I always enjoyed, like, when you'd get a new professor, which movies. I mean, a lot of them would call up some of the same stuff, like you'd watch the psycho shower scene in almost every film class. But it was really cool when they would go for interesting things like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. one challenge is also, you know, not going for the same old stuff and also yes. in uh, honoring <laughs> diversity. You know, I'll have yeah. a... I'll have a I'll have an hour and fifteen minutes where I'll talk about um, Afrofuturism in cinema. Or we'll, we'll talk about Charles Burnett. The film we're looking at next week in documentary is Ralph Peck's "I Am Not Your Negro." So I'm pretty okay. proud about the way yeah. the lecturer and the recitation professors have been, uh, be, you know, doing due diligence in that respect. 
Yeah, so that way it's timely, topical, and they'll get something out of that and see it more as like film reflecting life, oh, yeah. which is important. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm a huge fan of Goodfellas. It's one of oh, the movies well, that I've seen the most in my life. I grew up with the poster on my wall. Scorsese's my favorite filmmaker, and I'm the biggest fan of De Niro. So I couldn't wait to have you on. Congratulations on the book, which I'm loving. How did you choose Goodfellas as your subject? And was it born out of your previous book on Robert De Niro? I think to a certain extent, it might have been born out of my previous book on Robert De Niro, a book in which I don't really talk about Goodfellas all that much because that Ah. book, Robert De Niro, Anatomy of an Actor, was uh, done for Calle du Cinema Fadon, and it's a formatted book. It's part of a series of books, and um, Karina Longworth and Amy Nicholson have written in that series about... uh, um, Meryl Streep and uh, Tom Cruise, respectively. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Karina did two books for them. But you t- you basically choose ten films okay. from a given actor's career, and you write ten chapters that kind of give you a sketch of an overall career arc using those ten films. And oh, I love uh, that. then there there are selective sidebars and so on uh, where you can treat other things. And so in one sidebar, I talk about the De Niro-Scorsese dynamic and, and their mm-hmm. work together. But the main chapters in Anatomy of an Actor of uh, Scorsese-De Niro collaborations are uh, Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, and King of Comedy. Um, oh, okay. Which, yeah, you know, I like that. I mean, what are you going to do? Um, yeah. So, you know, not having explored Goodfellas, which is a very different film than all of those films, you know, in a way... Yeah. In, in, in ways that are both uh, have to do with the, the, the subtext and context and content of the film and also the way they fall in the careers of De Niro and Scorsese. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, um, you know, as I talk about in, in Made Men, my book about um, the making of Goodfellas, the De Niro-Scorsese relationship, while there's definitely a personal closeness to it, is not one in which they're, you know, best friends who constantly socialize. In fact, a very, very few relationship in film can get that close, only because, you know, uh, actors and directors are always going off to different parts of the world. Um, mm-hmm. But also they're, you know, they have close mutual friends, um, like Marty's friend Jay Cox, who whose couch yeah. De Niro slept on in the mid-60s. Uh, oh, wow. Jay was married to Verna Bloom, and Verna was one of the actors of that era who took Robert De Niro under her wing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to get in, into the Scorsese-De Niro dynamic, and one of the things I discovered was that, you know, the way that these films came together, their collaborations came together, there was always a different scenario. You know, uh, in Mean Street, you know, they knew e- they had known each other as nodding acquaintances in Little Italy growing up. Yeah. And they were reintroduced by Brian De Palma at a party hosted by Jay Cox and Vernon Bloom. And, okay. uh, you know, Scor- uh, De Niro was very interested in working with Scorsese because he saw that he was doing interested in doing exciting things. And when Mean Streets was happening, De Niro was very disappointed to learn that the main character, Charlie, uh, his role had already been cast. Uh, given to Harvey Keitel, who was yep. at the time bidding fair to become Scorsese's uh, surrogate in films, yep. despite uh, 
despite being a Pol despite being a Polish Jew and Scorsese being an Italian Catholic. Um, but After, uh, who's that knocking certain, on my door? Right. Yeah, who's that, that knocking their, on my yeah. door? Okay. And uh, Mean Streets. I mean, Keitel essentially plays plays a very similar character in both films, and that character yeah. has very deep roots in Scorsese's own personal life and development as a young man. So. Mm -hmm. um, De Niro was uh, rattled a little by this, but not too rattled because he, once he looked at the role of Johnny Boy, he understood what he could do with it. And that was, yeah. you know, no disrespect to the other incredible actors in it, um, Romanus and, um, you know, and, and Keitel and, um, and uh, the Doremus, uh, uh, I think. Um, not Doremus, but... Um, you know, De Niro knew he could just steal the movie from all of them, and he kind of yep. does. <laughs> and, um, you know, so that is that. And that was, you know, when that movie was done, you know, what what people walked away with, you know, they knew that Keitel had given a more than respectable performance. He's incredibly moving, but everybody's like, well, who's that, yep. who's that guy? Uh, you know, like seeing, you know, it's a smaller role in Body Heat, but when you see Mickey Rourke for the first time in uh, oh, Body Heat, yep. you just, you know, you're just sort of like, wow, that guy, that guy's got something. And De Niro, yeah. you know, and and the way the performance builds is to the to the terrible ending, and the uh, the bar scene where he just burns that ten dollar bill. It's a, it's really magnificent. So there mm -hmm. was, a, you know, there was a you know they would have to work together again just and and yes. they did in taxi driver in which Keitel also uh, makes a mm -hmm. appearance almost kind of flipping the switch and playing a, a, a johnny a, boy <laughs> and playing and playing a, a showy repellent supporting role as the pimp uh mm -hmm. sport um so you know there was a time when taxi driver was going to star jeff bridges you know yeah i, I read I that just, I can't imagine uh, that, but no. you know, it would have been a very different film, and mm -hmm. uh, so, so that that kind of that had its own logic to it. But um, and then the, that following that logic, Taxi Driver made a, a a big impression, and you know, so you know they wanted to continue the uh, the uh, dynamic, and and again with uh, New York, New York. Um, they concocted this character Doyle, Jimmy Doyle, who's uh, who's very who who has a lot of affinities with uh, both Scorsese and De Niro, and I think they were both trying. Yeah, David Proval, I'm sorry, that from Mean Streets. I think they were both trying to work out uh, on film in a creative way uh, the problem that they both had in terms of being able to have a meaningful personal life and being able to have a meaningful creative life. Yeah. This is a theme that they wanted to work out. And the, Scorsese will say that the movie got a little bit out of control. Mm -hmm. uh, they came up with something that they weren't really aiming for, but they also knew that it was very much something. Yeah. And that was, again, a, a kind of a exploration of affinities. But when you go further from there, um, Raging Bull was something that De Niro had kicked around for a while and wanted Scorsese to do, and Scorsese resisted. Yeah. Then when Scorsese had a rather terrible um, medical trauma pertaining to mm -hmm. drug abuse, during his recuperation, De Niro presented it to him and said, yep. we can do this film. And mm -hmm. 
Scorsese very, you know, getting his health back, but still very down in the mouth and very depressed said, well, you know, this is it. And he said to me, you know, that was going to be my last Hollywood movie. I was going to do that film. And then I don't know what I was going to do. I'd go to Italy and try to make films about the saints is what he said to okay. me. Um, yeah. Then raging bull had its own uh, dynamic. And um, despite not being a box office sensation, it, uh, it, 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 you know, expanded the legend yeah. of Scorsese and De Niro. And then that was when De Niro said, who had been developing King of Comedy for a very long time, brought it to Scorsese and said, I want to do this. And mm -hmm. Scorsese, there's a script uh, treatment of King of Comedy at the University of Texas in Austin. Because um, this is something that De Niro had been very actively developing for a, for a long time. And he, there are very, very many drafts of the treatment and script there's even a novel version of the king of comedy um and uh, in one of the drafts of a script uh there's a handwritten note from de niro saying marty why does it always have to be crazy or weird <laughs> you know and marty didn't want to do this movie because maybe at the time it was too crazy too weird for him but he did do it yeah it was a box office disaster and it really made scorsese very unbankable in a way that it yeah. did not make De Niro. Mm -hmm. So then years go by and it becomes a case of Scorsese asking De Niro a favor because mm -hmm. in the casting of Goodfellas, the studio wanted a, a name actor. His two leads were Lorraine Bracco and, and um, Ray, Ray, Liotta, Ray Liotta, two relative yeah. newcomers who did not have a lot of box office or marquee value. Who else did they have in the supporting cast? Paul Sorvino, another great character yeah. actor, not a marquee name, nor Joe Pesci for that matter. So mm -mm. in the intervening years, De Niro becomes a big movie star, which is something his agent, Harry Eflin, had said he never could be because he had too much integrity, not as a not as a working actor, but just as an actor actor. But mm -hmm. uh, or that run. he couldn't he, he couldn't ingratiate himself to audiences. It just wasn't in his DNA, but Midnight Run was the film that did it. Mm -hmm. And um, so, as I said to De Niro, when you met to talk about working on Goodfellas, the dynamic uh, professionally was a lot different. And mm -hmm. De Niro says, "How so?" I said, "Well, you're you're a movie star then." And he was like, "No." no. Um, <laughs> I had to like walk him through that. Oh, um, gotcha. <laughs> I like, though, that he didn't think of himself as, you know, Tom Cruise or something like that. That's kind of nice. He doesn't process things the way that yeah. uh, fans of his work do, nor the I way like that critics that. of his work do. He, in terms of landmark films, he thinks of places and what he was wearing, um, mm -hmm. you know, and how he prepared for a role. He doesn't think, you the know. The work. Yeah, it's yeah, about the he work. He doesn't think, well, that was a great, you know movie mm -hmm. he barely watches the movies yeah i remember reading that he said now he's starting to get curious about what it would be like to watch them all but yeah he doesn't really watch them and it's interesting for sure well i love all the first person interviews and the way you account for discrepancies or recollections and consult others to verify like yeah that sounds right or their take on it so how long were you working on this book and what was the hardest thing or person to nail down? 
Well, the book was in my mind for quite some time. Okay. Um, you know, I had written a proposal for it in 2014, so I'd been thinking about it then. And I was thinking about, you know, uh, creating a book that would kind of balance out uh, an exciting and interesting narrative with a kind of critical analysis that would hopefully put across my um, my own perception of the film and maybe clear up what I believe to be some pretty substantial misconceptions about yes. it. So that started in 2014, and we couldn't get a publisher for it then because the uh, market and making of books had kind of gone into a depression. So mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in the summer of 2018, so I guess two years ago, uh, my agent said, you know, I, I, I'm talking to an editor I think would be kind of receptive. And okay. uh, you should um, spruce up your uh, your proposal for the Goodfellas book. So I did that. And I had some uh, constructive discussions with the editor. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, publishing now is a very... Um, publishing now is what it is. Yeah. Uh, you get a lot of... You get asked to do a lot of stuff in the preliminaries before you see any money. Mm -hmm. uh, he asked me for a sample chapter. Um, okay. And I went and I talked, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to contact Nick Pileggi and oh, yeah. uh, go, to, go to lunch with him in October of 2018 and interview him and had mm -hmm. a great time. And Nick was so generous and gregarious and smart and fun and very kind. He paid for lunch, which oh, wow. I was absolutely yeah. prepared to do. Um, yeah. And I, you know, got the, I got I had the interview transcribed. I wrote up the sample chapter, and uh, the editor I was talking to still felt that my approach leaned too heavily on analysis and not enough on narrative. Uh, he was very worried about how he thought that everything that could be said about Goodfellas had been said in the uh, GQ 20th anniversary oral oh. history of the film, um, which I thought, well, and I mean... I don't think that was true, but it also made me feel like uh, if I ever did write the book, I would try to lean uh, on the GQ oral history very lightly. Yeah. Uh, I do I do cite it, but um, I didn't want to make it my main source. The GQ oral history is good, and yeah. it, is, it is put together in that great magazine-style way. I mm -hmm. remember how we used to do it at Premiere, and, and this was uh, definitely an all-hands-on-deck situation but you know oral histories um often get kind of like the chris farley show uh if you remember that if you remember <laughs> that, was that awesome. uh, yes if you remember that uh, saturday night live uh, sketch yeah. with chris farley where he just yeah you remember when you remember when you did that remember when you did yeah. that tracking shot in the copa yeah that was great you know so <laughs> um you know and it, it avoids that to a certain extent um but it also has that to a certain extent. So that's not something I was interested in doing. Mm -hmm. uh, so this guy, this editor and I agreed to disagree. And so I was left now having a sample chapter, having interviewed Nick Pileggi and, um, you know, having done this work and thinking about the book obsessively yeah. and no deal. And then we did get some interest from my lovely current publishers Hanover Square Press, and I met with Peter Joseph, the uh, editor-in-chief of Hanover Square Press, who, who's a fantastic person. We just mm -hmm. agreed on everything. Um, we made a deal 
in March of 2019, and I had a year to do the book. Um, oh, wow. And, That's a lot uh, in one year, Glenn. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, you know, usually a book like this is, is done in more than a year. Yeah. I understand why they wanted it in a year, because they wanted to hit the 30th anniversary of the film, and yeah. I agreed with that idea. So mm-hmm. I did my utmost to make that happen. And I literally, uh, my interview with Martin Scorsese actually happened five days before my manuscript deadline. So oh it, was a, it was a very, it was a very ex- exciting process, you know. Yeah. Uh, everything was happening. I thought, I had this idea that I would, you know, I would spend the summer doing interviews and then I'd mm-hmm. spend the fall writing the book and then... And it just, just so did not work out that way at all. I had a, <laughs> I had a, I had to keep chasing interviews the whole year I was doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there are some interviews I didn't get, and I won't say which ones because no one great thing about this book for me has been nobody says to me after they read it, how come you didn't interview so-and-so? Because I guess I give them a complete enough picture yeah. that they don't, they don't miss it. So I'm not going to like, I'm not going to push that case because, you know, why... Well, why belabor the point? I can knock wood. The fact that I was able to do this and and give people a really satisfying um, narrative and analysis, even though there are some people in there whose words I did not get. So, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I was literally like doing doing this work up until like days before you know I was supposed to submit the manuscript. So, you know, it was crazy, and there was a lot of anxiety at the beginning. You know, I'd wake up, you know at five in the morning and be like, my gears were grinding. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I started the book, I had like one set of notes, like a page of notes. I had the Pelleggi chapter and that was, and I had the outline. Yeah. That was, that was kind of it. And I knew, but I knew once the summer, I was started to hit some walls in the summer that like, no, this is just going to have to be, it's not going to go the way I planned. It's not going to go in this very orderly organized way. I'm going to be engaged with this all the time. And I have to yeah. face that and I have to look at that as being, you know, just how it is. And it was very gratifying to see as the year went on how my file on my desktop just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I started adding all this stuff to it. And if you look, you know, if I send you my file now, Goodfellas book, it's just packed with stuff. And oh, wow. uh, it just accrued over the course of this period of time. And there's some stuff I didn't even end up using. Mm-hmm. Um, because I didn't have, wasn't able to the shoehorn place. it in. There's yeah. one thing I actually forgot to put in that I feel like a real schmuck for forgetting to oh, put no. in, which is about the um, about the meet the gang shot, the uh, Steadicam shot, where I say, "Hey, how you doing?" You know. Yeah. Uh, and I had done the research, and it, you know that shot is a very direct homage to a shot in the Federico Fellini 1950s film Evidaloni. Where the camera, oh. it's not doing, a, it's not a steady cam shot, but it's a lateral dolly shot on a, on a balcony at a restaurant, and it's doing a, it's going from, uh, it's going uh, right to left, and the all the all the mooks of that film just sort of give a little salute to the camera and say, "Hey, cómo está?" You know, and that's <laughs> clearly the inspiration for the Goodfellas shot a very elaborate variation on that but i didn't put it in the book oh that i will that i will admit to hey everyone knows now and they're gonna go watch (laughs) e vitaloni yeah 
Right, because the Fellini box is coming out in November from Criterion. I know. Very exciting. Fun, fun, fun. Yes. Well, obviously, COVID has impacted a traditional book tour or film screenings in support of this release. But is there anything on the horizon, like a virtual reading or well, something? Well, tomorrow, that- you know, okay. you're, tomorrow night, and this will probably you're, you'll probably air after this. But I'll do a, a, a thing at Word Bookstore in Brooklyn, a virtual event with my friend Chaz Ebert and Welker White, who plays Lois in the film. Oh, okay. And I have some fun questions for her. And I may be doing more virtual events. I'm doing quite a few interviews. I've been on the I'm doing your podcast. I've been on the on the moment with Brian Koppelman, which was a great thing to do. And I'm doing a lot of radio stuff. And I will be on Excellent. CBS this morning. Uh, this oh, good. coming uh, the the nineteenth of September in an interview that also features Nick Pelleggi. So okay. that's a great thing. You know, one thing during the, the quarantine you know, um, a lot of a lot of big dates and Goodfellas happen during the quarantine, like May 11th, at, uh, yep. Henry's arrest day in the film, which is different from his actual arrest day, but never mind. Uh, so that gave me an opportunity to sort of gauge interest in the book. And one thing I've seen is that Goodfellas became uh, must-watch material for a lot of people during the quarantine. So I yes. feel like um, there's a certain respect where I can say that this book might make uh, excellent pandemic reading. Although, as I said, when we started our chat, it wasn't necessarily part of my plan to uh, make that a feature rather than a bug. Yeah, no, it was funny. They put together like this map of the United States and what was being watched the most in all the different states. And in Arizona, which is where I live right now, Goodfellas was the most watched thing on Netflix. And so I was joking, like, I know I watched it a lot, but I changed uh, the whole state. No, yeah, but no, I yeah, wish I, could go out, I would go out to Arizona. I'd go out to LA. Yes. I'd love to promote the book in person in those places. And maybe, you know, maybe for the paperback. <laughs> yeah. No, I can't wait. That would be wonderful. Well, okay, I know you like Goodfellas, but what are some of your other favorite films? Oh, boy. You know, I love Psycho. There's a Mm -hmm. legend in my family. When I was one year old, my parents went to see Psycho in a drive-in. My mother was uh, several months pregnant with my younger sister. And uh, the legend is that myself, as a one-year-old, just sat there looking at it wrapped. And my mother... You know, never went, <laughs> never took showers again, and and we now oh, wow. understood why my sister came out so weird. Um, <laughs> but um, no, just kidding. I love my sister; she's delightful. Yeah. She has about she has about nine nine to ten grandchildren at this point. Um, but you know, that was a f- early thing for me. I, I love horror films. I love Mario Bava. Uh, I love Fritz Lang. M was an early thing for me. Okay. You know, I was I was the kind of kid, you know, when it was network television and the local television stations, and my parents had a 12-inch Sony uh, black and white TV, and I'd scour TV Guide, and I'd, yep. I'd take their portable TV up to my room, and I'd watch uh, a terribly butchered and terribly dubbed cut of Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood at 2 in the morning. <laughs> I'd watch yes. Jean-Luc Godard's Alphaville at 2 in the morning. So I was like a little, I was a very, uh, you know, <laughs> film nerd little boy. And those, but those movies still have, have resonance for me, especially, you know, now that you can see them in wonderful uh, video versions that have been restored and, and they, they're, 
they have the integrity of the uh, director, the filmmaker's vision. Those films still resonate a lot for me, but I always love discovering things. You know, um, there's so much, there's so much to look at, so much to learn. A couple of years ago, I reviewed a picture by Bill Morrison called um, Frozen City, Dawson, uh, uh, Frozen City, um, okay. which is about this city in in uh, in Canada that was part of the part of the gold rush. It was the last stop of the gold rush, and they the, the city would um, you know have all these boom and bust times depending on how the gold prospecting was going, and they had this movie theater and they were the last stop on the line for film distribution between 1905 and uh, whenever and. Ah. The, the they buried all these reels of film under the local gymnasium swimming pool and then made it into a hockey rink. And then in 1977, trying to build a new building at that site, they unearthed all these film cans. Oh, my goodness. And it took Bill Morrison almost 40 years for the footage to get cataloged so we could make this amazing film documenting the story of that town through the footage that he found in that stash, and it's all movies nobody's ever heard of. That's incredible. Literally nobody's ever heard of. All this, all these, and, and, and none of them are fully intact, so they're all partially lost. So film mm-hmm. history is just, you know, so, the, the whole of it is so unknowable. It's like a library yep. of Babel. So, you know, there's always something to discover. And, uh, you know, yeah. I try and... What keeps me, I think, less, what I think keeps me alert as a critic is to not just fall back on the canon, but to mm-hmm. always be, you know, alive to older discoveries, um, you know, and things going on now that are, you know, formally uh, unconventional, off the beaten path, that sort of thing. No, I think that's really good advice, too. Well, I want to thank you so much, Glenn, for taking the time to do this. I love talking with you. This was so much fun. Thank you. Well, it's, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, and it's been really a pleasure to meet you. I've, you know, I know we've discussed stuff on Twitter and social media, yeah. but it's nice to uh, put a face to a Twitter voice, and it's just been great to speak to you, and I'm so happy you're enjoying the book. Well, thank you so much. I'm really happy to have spoken with you. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen and Friends. <laughs>